Welcome to The Operative Word, a podcast brought to you by the Journal of the American College of Surgeons. I'm Dr. Jamie Coleman, and throughout this series, Dr. Dante Ye and I will speak with recently published authors about the motivation behind their latest research and the clinical implications it has for the practicing surgeon. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily that of the American College of Surgeons. Welcome to The Operative Word, a podcast from the Journal of the American College of Surgeons. I'm Dr. Jamie Coleman, one of your hosts for this series. In this episode, I am joined by Dr. Dorothy Andriol and Dr. Yoni Amiel, and we will be taking an in-depth look into their current article, Core and Trustable Professional Activities for Entering Residency, a national survey of graduating medical students self-assessed skills by specialty. Dr. Andriol is a surgeon and senior director of medical education research at the Association of American Medical Colleges. Dr. Amiel is a professor of psychiatry and senior associate dean for innovation in health professions education at Columbia University. Dr. Andriel and Dr. Amiel, welcome to the operative word. Thank you. Before we begin, do you have any conflicts of interest to disclose? Thank you for asking, Jamie. I should mention I am a full-time employee of the AAMC, uh, which is the organization, organization that developed the Corn Trustable professional activities for entering residency, and is also the organization that administers the AAMC graduation questionnaire, uh, which was the survey from which we derived most of our data. And Jamie, the only thing I have to report is that during the time of the pilot, my institution received support from the AAMC for my work in uh, leading the pilot uh, on an extramural basis, but other than that, no conflict. Great. Well, Dorothy and Yoni, first, I want to start by just congratulating you on the publication and asking if you could please just start us off with a brief summary of your study, your methods, and your main findings. Sure. So very briefly, in 2014, the AAMC convened a drafting panel to identify a set of core entrustable professional activities, or EPAs, that should be expected of every graduating student to really be able to perform from day one of residency under indirect supervision. Subsequent to the publication of those core EPAs, the AAMC convened a 10 school pilot to uh, really look at how to implement these EPAs in an EPA framework. And on the graduation questionnaire in 2019, the uh, Student Surveys Committee added a set of items um, asking students to self-assess the extent to which they agreed they had the skill to perform each of these activities, and also to report the frequency of observation feedback that they received in the clinical workplace in performing each of these activities. As we look back on the core EPA's pilot and also the emerging literature and the work around the Coalition for Physician Accountability about the transition to residency, we thought that there could be great value in looking at these GQ data stratified by specialty. We're particularly interested in the surgical perspective because uh, surgery program directors are a unique group in that they alone are the program director organization by specialty that is essentially endorsed readiness to perform all 13 core EPAs for graduating students entering their specialty. Other specialties, um, have had different perspectives on this. So we took the national uh, data set for all 
uh, students who responded to the AAMC GQ, which is about 80% of all graduates of US medical schools um, among MD degree granting medical schools and looked at their responses to each of the EPA items about their agreement that they had the skills. And using a latent profile analysis, we really, um, and I should say we, largely um, our lead analyst, Doug Gerbeck, um, created two different categories because really student responses clustered into two specific groups with um, one group, which made up about two thirds of the respondents, really clustering around relatively high levels of agreement, although it varied considerably across the 13 different activities. And a second group, about a third of the respondents that clustered around much lower levels of agreement. And so just to, I'm going to briefly, if it's all right with you, I'm going to run through the 13 core and trustable professional activities, just for our listeners who may not know these off the top of their head, because really what we're talking about is a self-assessment of medical students graduating around these 13 skills. And to go through them quickly, it's gather a history and perform a physical examination, prioritize a differential diagnosis following a clinical encounter, recommend and interpret common diagnostic and screening tests, enter and discuss orders and prescriptions, document a clinical encounter in the patient record, provide an oral presentation of a clinical encounter, form clinical questions and retrieve evidence to advance patient care, give or receive a patient handover to transition care responsibly, collaborate as a member of an interprofessional team, Recognize a patient requiring urgent or emergent care and initiating both the evaluation and management of that patient. Obtain informed consent for tests and or procedures. Number 12, obviously as a surgeon, uh, perform general procedures of a physician, and I'm sure you'll elaborate on that. And then number 13, identify system failures and contribute to a culture of safety and improvement. So really what we're talking about, you know, is you're asking these students, you know, from day one, can you go see a patient? Can you think about that patient? And can you communicate clearly about what's happening with the patient? So it's really interesting. Um, uh, this paper was so great because I think that's one thing you know, we do want. We want our interns to hit the ground running. So can you tell us a little bit then about what you found? Sure. So we included a number of other variables in our models that would be potentially expected to be associated with which grouping people fell into. But really our main findings were around specialty. And there were certain specialties, including general surgery, number of surgical specialties, and a few others that were overrepresented in students in the high skill acquisition group. But I'm so glad you mentioned the 13 EPAs um, actually listing, because I think Another really important finding and probably really interesting, particularly for surgeons who have endorsed all 13 EPAs, even in that high skills acquisition group, there were a cluster of EPAs that were well below um, the others. And you know these are arguably really important skills. Yoni may want to talk some more about other data we have to support this observation, but um, certainly the um, EPA4, um, entering orders and prescriptions, EPA 8, the patient handover, um, recognizing a, per, a patient needing emergent or urgent care, 
informed consent procedures and uh, contributing to the uh, culture of safety across both groups, whether students were in the high skills group or the moderate skills group, those were much lower than the others. So this really speaks, I think, to systemic gaps across, um, you know, across our educational system, regardless of specialty. But Yoni, you've, you've thought a lot about this too. Yeah, what do, you, what do you think is the why behind this? Is it because they're future surgeons already thinking they already know um, <laughs> what they're doing? Or what do you think this, what are some theories or thoughts behind this? So I, I don't think we have a reason to, to think that, you know, future surgeons are, um, are confident just because they're confident. But I think that um, as we've been looking at the data, we've been um, thinking about what kind of senior experiences in particular um, the learners have. And we know that on surgical teams, the students have uh, a really authentic role in uh, delivering direct care to patients and performing certain procedures, working closely with their residents and, uh, and with other supervisors. And so we're wondering whether that intensity of supervision actually contributed to additional um, uh, confidence that's really based on experience. And what uh, we're curious to see is as we're and recovering from COVID and uh, supervisory systems and infrastructures come back into place, can we really try to push medical education to, um, to prioritize direct supervision, uh, especially for medical students? Uh, one, one of the things that Dorothy was mentioning, the different kind of clusters of EPAs and which ones performed particularly well and which ones uh, we struggled with a little bit more, was really, um, you know, those that uh, should be observed in more senior portions of the curriculum that um, that were more heterogeneous and our uh, entrustment committees or trained entrustment groups struggled with a little bit more. So I think that that gives us um, a sense of what we need to prioritize. You know, what does the senior medical student really uh, need to do? What should they do uh, in any of our curricula to make sure that they can take care of patients uh, starting on day one of residency? And I think. One of the findings from your multi-level logistic regression that really stood out to me was that, well, really were two. The first one being that students reported more direct, exactly what you're saying, more direct, more frequent direct observation and feedback. And I thought it was interesting, the cutoff was greater than five times. You know, so I think this was really stood out to me that this is really actionable for medical students, medical schools. You know, you're not saying, Yes, you need someone to sign off on something 15, 20, 25 times. You're seeing a uh, transition point, really, between these two groups at, at kind of a low number. And what you touched on it briefly already is that, you know, your study was comprised of students completing the 2019 graduation questionnaire. And as we know, there were obvious changes to the medical student experience during the time of COVID especially in light of this information, where direct observation and feedback, really being embedded in a team, having an active role makes a big difference in these students, not just confidence, but really abilities on day one, on July one of their intern year. What do you think you would find in medical students, you know, who graduated in the past two years? And I think also moving forward, do you think that we're now in 2022, 
do you think we're back to where we were from a medical school experience and education level pre-COVID? Really appreciate the question, Jamie. I, I, um, early, early in the pandemic, what we found um, uh, and what we observed as a medical education community was that the disruption really had us pull early learners away from direct patient care and, uh, and uh, put mid-stage and late-stage learners in positions where they took on a lot of responsibility and a lot more responsibility than, uh, than prior to the pandemic with supervision. Um, we learned a lot of lessons from that, uh, including that um, we probably didn't need to pull early learners once PPE concerns um, were, were uh, addressed, um, but we did need to put them in roles where they could be authentically, genuinely helpful to their teams. And in those roles, that's where we really would want to be providing direct observation and supervision and feedback. So as we recover, as our systems really come back into, uh, into function, I think that one thing that medical educators across the country and across the world are really trying to do is think about the authentic learner role that each part of curriculum uh, and try to uh, emphasize uh, assessment uh, direct observation, supervision at those time points that, that, um, that's appropriate for that level of training. So this is where I'm hoping, and I think we're all working hard to see us come out in a stronger place that's really educationally uh, driven uh, so that we can uh, make sure that our learners are getting the kind of feedback that they need in order to be safe in the workplace. I think you raised such an important question Generally, Jamie, not only in the context of our study and what our results might have looked like for graduates of arguably class of 21 um, was probably the single class most heavily impacted um, by the pandemic, but, but really the importance of us um, educators to continue to um, follow and better understand the progress of these graduates into residency and through residency. One of the ways um, we at the AAMC in a separate project have really been um, working on collecting data and sharing data widely about the preparation of graduates for um, the start of residency has been through the AAMC's Resident Readiness Survey Project, which completed the first two years of pilot data for graduates in the class of 20 and 21, and is now fully operational. So, um, you know, we'd really encourage program directors who get the survey to please complete it. We um, aggregate and share the results in the public domain at the AAMC stratified by specialty and various other ways that I think not only for this um, COVID impacted cohort, but I think for all our graduates going forward will be a really important additional piece. And I think perfect segue into my next question, um, which is really trying to figure out how we best ready these students. And interestingly, the second highlight from your logistic regression was the fact that you found that respondents who attended a medical school with the required specialty specific fourth year transition to residency course were more highly represented in the high school high skill acquisition agreement group. And it's interesting to me because it highlights really both sides of the coin, the experiential getting in there, 
you know, having a role with the team, but also having some standardized, some formal curriculum about getting these residents ready. Now, I know that the American College of Surgeons, along with AP, APDS and ASC, have a resident prep curriculum. Can you tell us a little bit, do you know how many medical schools are using it? And then also, how do we ensure that all incoming, not just surgical interns, but all interns get this educational opportunity regardless of their specialty? That's such a good point, Jamie. So about the, the surgery resident prep curriculum that I think is now um, sort of under the um, aegis of the ACS, but is jointly developed by the ACS, the APDS, and ASC. This is a national curriculum um, that's accessed at the institutional level. I think as of last year, there were over 100 institutions that had accessed um, this curriculum. Importantly, for those of us looking at, at these data, we don't know what that means at the given school level. So for example, a given school might have accessed the curriculum and might have incorporated that curriculum as a required specialty specific course for students at their school entering general surgery, or they may have incorporated that curriculum as an elective opportunity for students. And they may have incorporated parts of it or all of it. So there's a lot more we don't know, but it's potentially a really great model for how at the specialty level, um, specialty, a given specialty can really develop a curriculum that can be widely adapted at the medical school level. So better understanding what's happening at the medical school level um, would be really interesting. And we'd obviously love to you know, pursue opportunities to better understand that. Um, we really couldn't explore that more in our data. We only had information about whether or not students graduated from a school that offered some sort of specialty specific course or courses on a required basis, but that doesn't necessarily mean there were schools that offered the ACS curriculum. I think, um, I did want to tie in with something else you and Yoni had briefly discussed about sub-internships and other opportunities in the fourth year, because I think the consensus statement that APDS released that addressed entrustability in the core EPAs as one of the recommendations, they also very specifically call out the importance of sort of night and other on-call experiences, also dedicated critical care experiences, as well as a residency prep course. So I don't think it's any one of these, I think it's the combination. And I think the national curriculum is a great step forward in standardizing how medical schools operationalize this. But I think it's a, a great opportunity for partnership with the surgery GME um, affiliated with that medical school to really do it jointly because we're jointly interested in maximizing the preparedness of our graduates. Yoni, any comments on that? Uh, just to say that, you know, surgery has been really thoughtful and a leader here. I think that in um, trying to pick a common framework between the way we educate medical students and we, uh, the way we educate residents, um, you know, we've been missing that common framework and many people are working on that. Surgery is committed to using entrustable professional activities in graduate medical education. And I think we have a lot of work in undergraduate medical education that can bridge to that. So we'll see how the, the conversation really shakes out. But once you speak the same language, it's much easier to develop 
common curricula and to make sure that we prepare our students uh, for the transition, which I think is important to us all. Great. Well, thank you both so much. Just another plug then, again, for us to get the common language is really emphasizing that resident readiness survey for the program directors, which will help all of us, um, not only on the undergraduate side, but on the graduate side as well, when we have interns who are better and more prepared for internship. Thank you so much, Dr. Andrew and Dr. Amiel, for taking the time to discuss your recent article. And thank you to our listeners. If you have any feedback for us here at The Operative Word, please drop us a line at postmaster at facs.org. See you next time. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks, Jamie. Thank you for listening to the Journal of the American College of Surgeons Operative Word Podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, spread the word on social media by using the hashtag JACS Operative Word. Subscribe to the Operative Word wherever podcasts are available or listen on the American College of Surgeons website at facs.org slash podcast.